Uh, as I was mentioning throughout the show, it's the 50th anniversary of perhaps the most important sporting event in Canadian history coming up. Uh, it was September 2nd, 1972, that the very first game of that Summit Series between Team Canada and the USSR took place in front of a packed and very warm Montreal Forum. There's the Montreal Forum again. A rude awakening it was for Canada in the battle for world hockey supremacy, a loss in the first of eight games, four here in Canada four more back in the Soviet Union. It ended in Vancouver with another loss, leaving the record at one win, two losses and a tie heading to Moscow. Fans were not pleased. Phil Esposito famously spoke about that after the game in Vancouver. For the people across Canada, we tried. We did our best. And uh, for the people that boo us, geez, I, I'm really, I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got. Uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. Phil Esposito after that loss in Vancouver. Well, they would turn things around, of course, in Moscow, famously. Uh, Foster Hewitt would famously call the comeback and the goal that won it all, Paul Henderson, late in Game 8. Bernoye has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot. Right by the shore. I wasn't even there. I still get shivers listening to that. I um, didn't even watch it. Well, the series and the 50th anniversary is the subject of a new book. Joining me now is Scott Morrison, sports journalist and author of the newly released 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Scott, it was a fascinating book. You've covered hockey for a very long time. What was the inspiration for writing about the Summit series? Well, I, 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 wrote, I wrote a book uh, leading up to the, the 20th anniversary and uh, you know this obviously being 50 years and none of us are getting any younger sort of a final time uh, maybe to tap into everybody involved and <clears throat> relive the, the moments and uh, get their insights and perspectives about <clears throat> just how special that series was because it's a it's a historical moment for not just hockey but our country I mean it was a time that brought us all together and united the country. It's, um, you know, there's a series, especially the last one of where you were moments, uh, a time when our country stood still. So uh, just uh, making sure the memory of that series lives on and uh, lives on for a, another generation or two is, uh, I think, important too, because we need to need to keep, uh, keep it alive and, and appreciate what happened back in the day uh, and the influence it had on our lives and uh, and our game. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. I was too young to watch or remember the 72 Summit Series, but I would hear the stories of, you know, school classrooms with TVs in them, everyone stopping to watch, certainly game eight, the final game, watching Henderson score. Where were you? Do you remember where you were when Paul Henderson scored that goal? Yeah, I was uh, just about to turn 14 and uh, I stayed home for, one of the Moscow games was a Sunday, and then I stayed home from school for the other three. <laughs> My parents allowed me to do that. But, you know, the title, title, subtitle of this book is the series that changed hockey forever, which it did. And the, the first book was the days that Canada stood still because we did. I mean, you know, the schools, they were wheeling in TVs into gymnasiums and putting kids in there. Kids were allowed to have, uh, you know, transistor radios in their pocket and listen to the broadcast. Uh, people stayed away from work. I, know, I remember seeing pictures and films of, you know, people on a sidewalk outside a, an electronic store where they'd have all the TVs in the window with the game on 
and there'd be packs of people standing there watching the games, yelling and screaming and cheering. And, you know, two thirds of our population uh, watched those final games. I mean, it's just an amazing number. So we were, we were absolutely um, just taken down by this. I mean, we just, uh, we stopped, we came to a standstill and embraced every moment of it. When you look back at the history of it now, um, did you, do you have a different perspective of why it was so monumental than you, when, when you did 20 years ago? I remember growing up, it just was. You just said 72 Summit Series, and you didn't have to explain. But now when you think about how everyone would, might be watching those same games by themselves on their phones, you know, it wouldn't be quite the same unifying event, perhaps, although 2010 was. Um, but when you look back now, do you have any different take on, on why it was so monumental? Well, I think it was for a number of reasons. From a hockey perspective, obviously, uh, you know, it was the first time that our best players played uh, their best players, so-called amateurs, which they weren't. But, you know, it was the first time it was best on best that we had always been sending amateur teams to play against them in the Worlds and the Olympics. And, and after the 60s, we weren't winning very much. And that was a big impetus by behind having this series. And so the impact that it had on the hockey world after that, it opened up the doors to, you know, all of a sudden we had Canada Cups and then you, you had pros at the Olympics and you have all the European players playing in the NHL. So it had a profound influence from that perspective. And, you know, even for the Soviets losing, the, a big impetus of that series is they were dominating international hockey and they wanted a new challenge just to see where they stood on a bigger stage. And so it was a win for them from that perspective and a win for us for ultimately prevailing. But what made it special too is that the dynamic behind it, that, you know, the world was a, a, a little different at that time because of the, the political times that, uh, you know, it was communism versus capitalism. It was, you know, West versus East. It was freedom versus oppression. It was the Cold War was going on in the world. And the Russians, the Soviets were just a, a black and white, uh, scary image on the, the nightly news that we were worried about because of the, the chance of, of politics and wars and all of that. And, uh, and all of that kind of emotion played into uh, the series, the, what the players were feeling, that they weren't just playing for the for a for a hockey championship that they were they're playing to defend their way of life. I mean, you don't like to diminish the the word war, but they called it a war. That's how it felt to them that they were defending the country on many levels, from what we believed in politically and how we lived to you know, how we played the game. On top of it. I always remember my father telling me that when the Soviets first showed up, everyone sort of laughed at the way, you know, their bad equipment and thought, we're going we're, we're gonna to win this in eight. Like, we're going to win all eight of these games. And then there's that, those famous interviews with Esposito, who wrote the foreword to your book, when the Canadian fans started booing them for losing. How, how devastating were those first, or how much of an awakening were those first few games and how the series ultimately played out? Well, I think uh, virtually everybody, and there was a few people like uh, Brian Conacher and the late Billy Harris who had been involved in international ventures who were cautioning people not to underestimate the Soviets uh, prior to the series, but everybody else were believing that, you know, it's where the NHL is and uh, we'll walk over them in this series. It's going to be a lark. It's going to be like an all-star festival and, uh, you know, everybody's going to play, everybody's going to have fun. 
And that was pretty much the attitude of the Canadians going into the series. And then opening night, you lose seven to three. And it was a shocker. And it was a reality check. And by the time Vancouver, you know, there's one win, two losses and a tie. And I think the Canadian fans felt like they were betrayed, that the players were letting them down, that they weren't trying hard enough, that they, they, didn't, they weren't ready to take on this, on this series. And I think what Phil's speech to the fans after that loss in Vancouver with all the booing and disgruntlement was, we are trying our best. And we were sold a bill of goods. We were told that we were going to do, this was going to be a walkover, but these guys can play, but we're going to continue to do what we have to do. And we're going to, we're going to win this series. And I think he didn't turn the team around with that speech, but I think he turned the Canadian public around in terms of how they viewed the team by the time they got to to Moscow, where there's much more support with 3000 fans over there and 10,000 telegrams and, well wishes that were sent over all of a sudden the country realized, yeah, these guys are, they're in deep and it's not their fault. And let's try to support them to get out of it. Everyone always remembers the goal, obviously the Paul Henderson goal. I've seen that replay a thousand times and the fact that he had scored the game winning goal in the previous games, but you have a real special spot for Phil Esposito in this series. I absolutely do. I mean, Paul was phenomenal from start to finish in it with uh, Ron Ellis and, and Bobby Clark. And he, you know, he scored the game winner in six, seven of f- the greatest goal of his career in game seven from a, from a skill standpoint. And then obviously game eight, 34 seconds, he would have had the game winner in game five. If they'd held on to the lead, they blew a lead in that one. So yeah, Paul was the hero, but Phil was the heart and soul of the, of the team. He was the, the leader and all the players, including Paul will tell you that, that he was their best player. And it was, he just, he refused and, nights he win that team to victory doing whatever it took and uh, you know the game eight especially just just look at the third period of that game and think about they're down five three he scores a goal he sets up another and then he sets up the winner again and it was like he had told the guys at various times we are not losing this series so let's go and uh, you know he led by example and Harry Sinden who knew him well from the Boston days said it was the, the greatest hockey he had ever played I'm speaking with sports journalist Scott Morrison about his newly released book, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever on the soon to be 50th anniversary of the Soviet Canada summit series uh, back in 1972, the famous Paul Henderson goal. After this, we'll talk a bit more just about the legacy and also some of the the darker side of the series, because there were a lot of shenanigans going on on the ice and behind the scenes as well. Interesting to find out what players look back now and think of those times. Uh, That's after this. Well, it's Wednesday night here, Thursday morning in Delhi. That's where Polash Mukherjee is. He's the lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the national, um, one second, at the, uh, sorry, lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the National Resources Defense Council in India. Uh, We've been talking about this heat wave that hit the country uh, in April with the hottest April's on record, uh, not right across the country into Pakistan as well, and just what kind of impact that's having. Uh, I gather one of the big, and you mentioned this right before the break, Polash, was this idea of energy consumption, because India still gets 70% of its energy uh, mix from coal. And as you mentioned, that's something that probably needs to change at some point in the not too distant future, with demand expected to increase so much and the heat uh, also expected to increase. Yeah, that's, that's right, Ben. I mean, uh, India is uh, cleaning up its uh, its energy sources gradually. 
but as of right now we remain dependent on coal uh, what we are, what we are seeing with the early onset of heat this year is that uh, india's peak electricity consumption which is increasing every year uh, is has come in earlier uh, last year the peak was in the month of june uh, late june in fact and this year we've already hit the peak in the month of april so what this means is more and more people are accessing uh, means of space cooling uh, means of artificial cooling uh, which is which you utilize a lot more uh, electricity uh, like air conditioning what, air conditioning and so forth right of course right. that's right that's right uh, is there an opportunity here i mean how given that we think this is a trend that is going to continue that we're going to see earlier, hotter springs, uh, even hotter summers. Uh, what can be done to try to mitigate some of the impacts that we're seeing? There's a big opportunity here in terms of, uh, in terms of building out uh, uh, resilience uh, against extreme heat, uh, not just through uh, active heat management, but also through passive heat management, uh, which is right. what we're seeing through measures like uh, uh, increased building efficiency increased uh, thermal efficiency in buildings uh, we are noticing now that uh, we do know for a fact that india is rapidly growing uh, in fact in terms of urbanization uh, in, in the last census in india had a, a urban population of just about 35% which is slated to increase to about 60% in the next two decades uh, this means that uh, close to half or half or more of uh, the buildings that will exist in 2060 are yet to be built. So that right there is a big opportunity. Uh, there is the opportunity to, for us to build our, uh, our buildings better, uh, to have more, have more thermal efficiency inbuilt into them, uh, to have better, th- better uh, energy efficiency inbuilt into them, to the new air conditions uh, uh, and the uh, appliances that we do install. Uh, if you're able to ensure that they are more uh, efficient uh, and they they operate they operate uh, better using less electricity that is an opportunity going forward uh, there are also uh, big passive uh, passive cooling options that uh, we do advocate with the government with uh, low income neighborhoods especially especially for the vulnerable uh, we do enjoy something called cool roofs uh, now, cool right. roofs are a very low-cost and uh, effective solution, I would say, uh, especially for the low-income neighborhoods that I was referring to. Uh, these are essentially right. a layer of paint, uh, or they could be an additional layer of, uh, of material on the roof that will increase the reflectivity of the roof and therefore ensure that uh, much more of the sunlight gets reflected back rather than absorbed by the building. It has been seen uh, that... Uh, cool roofs can reduce indoor temperatures by as much as four to five degrees Celsius and therefore make a big difference. Polash, I mean, I, I get the impression, I think we, we all know this, that in countries like India, you're preparing now to live with temperatures that we didn't think we might ever see. I mean, and consistent temperatures in the mid 40s. And that's extremely warm. I remember watching something last year about life at 60 living under 60 or 50 or 60 degree temperatures. Is that a reality now, do you think, um, for, for many parts of the country? Uh, well, I, I'd say 60 is uh, far away. And well, I 60, hope is, 60 is way too high, but 50 perhaps. Yeah. 50 perhaps. Yes, I, I, I do hope that we, do, we don't have to see such high temperatures. But unfortunately, the reality is that uh, 
it's already good i mean these high temperatures are here now and we have to safeguard ourselves against uh, such high temperatures right now uh, while efforts continue to you know to to reverse the impacts of climate change uh, we see that countries like india uh, have been are beginning to be and have been affected by the impacts of climate change in the last couple of years and heat waves is just one example of, of the same right in the last couple of years we've seen uh, added uh, cyclones uh, we've seen shifting of rainfall patterns uh, we've seen more severe cold cold spells so these are all related to changes in the weather patterns that are uh, impacted by climate change uh, so while it is important to do, to have the mitigation activities to to reduce uh, the long term impacts of climate change uh, at nrdc we are also working with uh, communities to build up their resilience uh, to help them deal with, uh, with 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 something that's being becoming very real all around them the impacts of climate change so what do, what to the next what to the next few weeks what did the next few weeks look like now how warm is it today and, and how is it going to be for the rest of the week has there been any sort of reprieve from that high heat of uh, of late april so where i am in delhi uh, very fortunately and it was almost like a, a like a celebration yesterday we had uh, the first spell of rainfall uh, for the season uh, which kind of uh, reduced temperatures uh, which was a much needed relief uh, so today uh, it is likely to go up to 37 degrees celsius uh, but in the coming weeks uh, the heat is expected to come back we do know that the months of may and june are the worst in terms of uh, heat uh and uh, uh so so it is important to continue to take those precautions uh, especially in this northern northern indian belt uh, of delhi of uh, the indo gangetic plain of rajasthan of madhya pradesh these are all extremely heat prone zones uh so we are expecting the heat to uh, continue to get back in a couple of uh, days Polash Mukherjee, thank you so much for an update today from Delhi. Um, have a good Thursday and thank you for the information. It's a fascinating insight. I hope it cools down for you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much and have a great day.